Hello, Julian. Hello, Mike. Hey, Julian, I've come across the five W's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've no idea what they are. Could we get Sarah Heath to tell us about them? Yeah, I think probably best. Brilliant. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. So, do I overweight uh, embarrassed you by saying how long ago I met you, but you have told us that you qualified in 1988, so I don't think I'm letting too many cats out of the bag. A veterinary term there. But I first met you at the RVC, 1993, probably our third year. It will, it will, because I've started RVC teaching around 1992. Because, yeah, I had a, in 1992, when I first did it, I had a baby at home who was eight weeks old. So I remember driving to Potter's Bar to give lectures. And then it's a veterinary ramblings, isn't it? So I'm probably allowed to say things like this, but driving back with my foot on the accelerator, going, if he's not awake when I get home, we'll have to wake him because I cannot contain this milk any longer. I felt like a cow going to the, the parlour. It was like, I was about as long as I could last to drive to RBC and back. So, um, yeah. So I remember it very well going to the RBC to lecture. But they were good lectures. We didn't have many lectures on behaviour. Did we have probably two or three, I think, was it? Yeah, I came half a day, I think. With well, who it was? Rightly. Yeah. yeah. I remember rightly on the old mastitis potential issue. Then, yeah, it was probably about about that long. Yeah. Half a day. But we were probably the first year that started having behaviour lectures. So I think the year before you, I, I think if you were 93, then 92. Then Biggs various questions as far as I'm concerned. One is, between 1988 when you qualified and 1992 when you were heading up the behavioural lecturing at the Royal Veterinary College, there was a sea change in the understanding of, of behaviour at a veterinary level. And that was all, I think, down to you, wasn't it? I thought you were going to say, what the hell were you doing with your time? But between 1988 and 1992, I was working in a mixed practice in Northamptonshire, starting really with an interest in behaviour as it related to companion animals, because I went to vet school to be a dairy vet and was very interested in the welfare of dairy cattle. But at that stage, I haven't really translated my passion about welfare into companion animals. Mm-hmm. And that kind of happened towards the end of final year and then going into my first job. So when I, it struck me that, hang on a minute, these companion animals' welfare is not that great. Why are we emphasising all of this attention on farm animals only? So yeah, that was really a bit of a turning point. And I think you're generous to think that there'd been a sea change by 1992. <laughs> That's a bit optimistic. It was starting, I think, around 1992, 19, yeah, 91, 92, that sort of time for vets to actually start taking behavior a bit more seriously and realize that it related to the veterinary profession and so i think that was the time but it's a work in progress i would say we've definitely made a lot of progress over the 37 years i've been qualified but which is quite interesting because it's the basis of what i'm talking about in my cpd thing for me to do so <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, come on. it's a surprise it's a surprise to the audience they were, they were in <laughs> We'll come on to that. You said the, about 
animal welfare in companion animal being poor could have been better? Production animals, it made sense that their welfare needed to be thought about because we were using them for human purposes and therefore it was a responsibility to consider their welfare. And then I don't think at that stage really companion animals were thought of in that way of being utilised by us. They were more our companions, they lived alongside us and there was a kind of assumption, I think, that their welfare would be fine because why wouldn't it be? Because they were living with us and doesn't everyone want to live with us? And isn't that the best thing for everybody? And therefore, they'll all be fine rather than it's a pig living in a pig stall and therefore could be wrong or a laboratory animal even living in a laboratory. And they were thought about as having welfare needs. But there was almost a feeling that if it's a companion animal, of course, we're fulfilling their needs because we love our companion animals. So we always do everything right. And unless it was extreme. So, of course, animal abuse it was sadly already recognised. I'm not saying that wasn't. So extreme situations, I think, were being picked up on. But everyday welfare challenges, possibly not. At Langford, I think there was a real awareness. John Webster was very, obviously, very prominent in the world of animal welfare. It's in a large animal context. And so in terms of a large animal context, I think there was a lot of awareness. And of course, Avril Waterman was also at Langford when I was there doing her work on analgesia in sheep, which was groundbreaking stuff about the fact sheep needed analgesia. And so there was a lot of work going on in those sorts of fields at, at Bristol when I was there as an undergrad. And it was yeah. her work that led to dates being given for illustration use and castration yeah. use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So those were groundbreaking pieces of work that were being done by people. But again, it's livestock related. And very much that was the emphasis in terms of the five freedoms when they were first talked about. It was to do with agricultural use. And, and then we had, of course, the the Farm Animal Welfare Council, FAWC. So, yeah, it's, everything came a lot later for the companion animals. It sounds to me as if everybody working around you at Bristol was all, this whole groundswell, this movement was all happening there. What got you into behaviour, Sarah? I got into behaviour via dairy cows because that was absolutely my obsession before I went to vet school. And I'd say I was surrounded by a lot of large animals welfare type stuff at Bristol. Right. Jim Pinsent, who was an amazing man and was our large animal medicine lecturer, he used to talk very much about the art and science of veterinary medicine and talked a lot about welfare in, again, the cattle, mainly a cattle context. And it was really when Roger Mugford came to give a day of lectures at Bristol in our final year, talking about behavior and mainly about dogs, a little bit about cats, I seem to remember. And I was sitting in those lectures thinking, this is very similar to what we think about with cows. And so yeah, why are we not thinking about this with all species? And yeah, a bit of a thinking of, oh, that's really interesting. I could see how all these things I've been interested in large context actually apply across to other species. And then went into my first job, which was a uh, 65, 60, 40, 70, 30 sort of split large animal majority work because that's what I wanted to do. And then started doing small animal work and realized actually I really enjoyed small animal work. And particularly my first boss, who was called Peter Waite, who sadly passed away very recently, he was an amazing man. And he had already recognized that 
there was something about behavior in companion animals that needed to be looked at. Didn't have any education in that himself. So therefore was working with David Appleby, who time was a member of the Association of Pet Behaviour Counselors and was referring cases to David Uppleby for behavioural assistance. And that was happening when I joined the practice. So that gave me the opportunity to use my half days on a day to go and sit in and watch David Uppleby doing what he did. And yeah, so it all spiralled from there, really. We're going back to this obsession with uh, dairy was that was that out of the blue or out of the bucolic so I, I come from cheshire and there are an awful lot of cows but no i think originally my interest in farm animals came from farm holidays so it used to be a book see i'm showing how old i am now you can talk about my age because so i'm admitted <laughs> there was a book called the farm holiday guide where people which people would use to find farms that you could go and stay on for, for family holidays and basically that was how we had family holidays because they were cheap. So we used to go and stay on farms and then we always stayed places where they were quite happy for the kids to watch. But I used to get up at four in the morning to go milking or go out and help. And I'd spend, I'd be dragged kicking and screaming for day visits with the family because I wanted to stay on the farm. I didn't want to go on my holiday. I wanted to stay there and do stuff with the farmer and just get to know what was happening on the farm. And that yeah. was from quite an early age. So by the age of eight, I decided I wanted to be a dairy vet. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I don't think we've had that before on the show, have we? We've had various reasons, excuses and stories, <laughs> but not one like that. That's a lovely story. <laughs> that's a lovely story. No, that's really how it started. Yeah. And then I badgered my local veterinary practice until they were sick to death of hearing from me. So go and see mm -hmm. practice and started regularly seeing practice at about 12, 13 or so. Wow. Yeah, with the local practice. So. so this era, maybe when you start secondary school, you can come and help us. <laughs> those letters. Yeah. Yeah. Have lots of those. Excellent. I think we probably will edit out the badgering of it because that doesn't tie into well with the dairy following bit, does it? So we've played. Like, oh, no. That fits. That. that fits. That, that fits. That just fits perfectly. That's a, absolutely, that's a perfect link. Corn yes. badgers. There we go. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned Roger Mugford and he was quite, quite well known for a long period of time. Well, I think he's probably being forgotten about with the new generation, but his legacy lives on, doesn't it? I don't think he's forgotten about. I think he's moved more into legal stuff. So he was very vocal in, in opposing the Dangerous Dogs Act and, I think he did a lot of work at that time and possibly had gone more over into doing legal-based work. But I, I, the company of animals, as far as I know, still exists. So it's still working. He's been forgotten. But obviously at that time, anything to do with behaviour in companion animals was really thought of as not being real. And I suppose that's where my involvement and my sort of approach changes. It's to veterinary behavioural medicine which is something different from dog training, counselling, those sorts of things. But it is important, and this is something I've worked really hard at over the years I've been doing this, is to advocate a multi-professional, multidisciplinary approach. And so I do think it's very important that we do work with our non-veteran colleagues. This is what I'm very interested in, is the delivery of healthcare and how 
is done most effectively for the patient. And I do believe that is done most effectively with a multidisciplinary and multi-professional approach. So work of people like physiotherapists, for example, and the people that we really do need to work alongside. If human doctors don't deliver the entirety of human healthcare, so why should vets? But at the same time, because our species are less able to communicate, they're not able to communicate. They do communicate. It's just most people can't understand them. So because they speak in a language that, that very few humans understand, I think that's the reason that it has to be a veterinary-led team, to borrow the BVA phrase. So this is an area where it must be veterinary-led, and I feel very passionately about that. So the first person that an animal needs to see is a vet, and then people who are not veterinary surgeons need to work on veterinary referral, not because vets are superior in any way, but just because to safeguard the welfare of the animal, they must first be seen by someone who hopefully understands their language and can at least make sure that they rule out some very important potentials before a non-veteran person is dealing with what they are very capable of dealing with, which is the cognitive side of things, but that we need to make sure that the animal is safeguarded in terms of welfare. And for me, that is a veterinary responsibility. So that's why I believe it's a veterinary-led approach to behaviour issues. There are a lot of people out there calling themselves behaviourists, aren't there? Yeah, and that's a massive problem because it's not a regulated term. So sadly, there isn't a formal respect qualification that says this is going to be okay. There are very good qualifications out there. So there are masters at Lincoln and masters at Edinburgh. There's also the Certified Clinical Animal Behaviour Qualification, which used to be through ASAB, the Association for the Study of Animal Behaviour, who very kindly supported that certification scheme in its infancy. But now, so many years on, it's, it has got wings and become autonomous. So it's now the CAB Accreditation Limited now run the CAB scheme. And that, that is a very gold standard qualification to look for. So if you're looking for initials, and that does get confusing, it's CCAB, double C. And there are lots of variations that are very similar. So you do have to be careful when looking for qualifications and letters and that sort of thing. And making sure that people are members of a recognised organisation. So something like the Fellowship of Behaviour Clinicians, for example, or someone who expects a certain standard and has a code of conduct and a disciplinary procedure and those sorts of things, not someone who's flying solo. I think And as much as none of us like disciplinary procedures and committees because they frighten us, they serve a very valuable process, do they? Yeah. Yeah, we want one want to know that the person has got some level of accountability if they did happen. Especially I don't know whether vets really always remember this, but if you refer a case to a non-vet colleague, so you refer to a physiotherapist or you refer to someone in the behaviour field who's not a vet, you retain duty of care, deeply responsible for the advice that is then given on your behalf. And if you refer to another veterinary surgeon, they share duty of care of the patient. But if it's a non-vet, then you retain it. So you're legally responsible for anything your client is told to do by the person you've referred to. I do think a lot of GP vets are not aware of that or forget that. 
when they happily sign over their patient to somebody that they've never even met or never even spoken to anything. Oh, I don't think I'd do that. Absolutely. They, they, they rub their hands of the case, don't they, mentally? They think, great, I've yeah. got rid of that, but no. You not haven't. So. Yeah, not, <laughs> not legally anyway. Yeah. So have you referred in patients to Caesar Milan then? <laughs> Funnily enough, no. Oh. <laughs> You'll be surprised to hear. Oh, but, but Caesar's got lots of books and programmes out, I'm sure. You know, someone that well-known. He did get lots of books and things out. I think there are a lot of people out there who are very misguided, potentially well-intentioned, who are sending out information that is potentially very detrimental to animal welfare. We've got to be very cautious about what is, unfortunately, if you look on YouTube, there's stuff put up there in the name of humour and comedy that actually, in my eyes, is animal abuse. And if certainly if things like that were happening to children online, action would be taken but because it's a non-human animal, it's laughed at. So there's an awful lot of things that are happening that I think as a vet should be involved in speaking out against, actually. I don't think it is acceptable to just let YouTube allow animals who are really being, I say, abused. And yeah, it's, isn't it funny? And horrifically, the other day I was sent a thing from Facebook. I don't do social media, far too old for that. But I don't bother with any of that stuff. Um, but someone sent me a clip from a Facebook thing in Australia that was actually a veterinary consult. And it was a nurse and a vet in the consult. And it was horrific handling of a cat. Truly horrific. Oh, really? Petrified. And it was put up as a humorous clip. And that was, a, that was in a veterinary practice. And they were like... Holy. Surely, obviously it was Australia, it's not within our jurisdiction, but surely something has to be done about that. And that is not acceptable for that to be put out to the public because isn't this funny? Look how this cat doesn't like coming to the vets. And the way handling it was terrifying the poor thing and it was, it was being repelling in its behaviour back. And But it was not funny in any way, shape or form. No, we see a lot of that thing. It's, it's humorous to watch cats jump at uh, uh, cucumbers but, but the narrative behind that is actually they're terrified yeah exactly yeah why would we even consider doing that you and as i say if you did it to a child and put it on youtube there'd be an absolute outcry my yeah. ones weren't acceptable at all yeah. no but yeah. because it's a non-human animal and suddenly it's all right we can do what we like yeah. um which yeah. is a very human arrogance thing unfortunately it is there are a lot of people mistraining dogs or giving advice on how to train dogs very inappropriately on TikTok, on Instagram. I don't know why people just don't use those media to, to watch fashion ramblings, to be honest, but you must see some of those, get sent some of those and really seethe with, uh, with anger. It is, it's disappointment, I think, about, you know, that when we're still 30 odd years on, still haven't absolutely got the message out there that A, that Non-human animals are equally important to ourselves and B, they are sentient, emotional, living beings and need to be treated with respect. And still we haven't got that. It's still a, almost a human utilitarian, even if they're companion animals, okay. uh, approach to, to how we deal with them. Okay, so we've come a long way in the last 40, 40 50 years. There's no question about that. Oh, definitely. 
but there's obviously a whole tranche of humanity that needs dragging into the 2020s. So how can we do that, Sarah? What Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I think it is education, but the trouble is you've got to do it in a way. There's such, like talk, speaking out against the YouTube stuff, what I've done is done some stuff with vet students where we've just collated YouTube clips and then discussed them. Because if you just come out saying these YouTube clips are terrible, because especially when you're old like me, then people just go, oh, you're out of date. You don't get it. You're just not into YouTube. They're not interested. And think you're a killjoy and you've got no sense of humor and blah, blah, blah. So I think you need, it needs to be slightly more of an explanatory opening your eyes type of let's have a look at this video and see what is actually happening. And it's having the scope to do that. I've been able to do that with vet students at clinical clubs and things like that. But how else you get across to the actual general public? I don't, I'm not sure because unfortunately the media love it. They absolutely, they love short clips of stuff they can do quickly. And there are people, Victoria Stilwell, for example, she is doing a great job of communicating in fields I have no contact with at all. I'm not a media person. I'm, you know, I do my communication primarily within the veterinary profession and to the adjacent non-veterinary behavioral world, but I'm not really involved and linked into the dog training world. That's not really where I focus my work, but I work with people who do. And so people like Victoria Stilwell, who runs the Victoria Stilwell Academy and training dog trainers to be more aware of the emotional impact of training and that sort of thing. And then people like Sarah Fisher, who's from Animal Centered Education, and she's a fantastic person who talks again across. She's got a foot in the behavior world and the training world, so she can communicate a bit more between the two. And Sarah and Fisher and myself speak every year at the Dog Behaviour Conference that Victoria Stillwell organises. And that is a way, hopefully, of bridging again communication between the two worlds and so that the behaviour world does get some input into the dog training world and vice versa, because we do rely on cognition. So some of what we do is cognitive. I have a very good team of rehabilitation coaches that work with myself, so I'm that we're very lucky we because we're specialist behavioral practice which actually is incredibly rare that we have a team of vets and we're supported by non-veterinary rehabilitation coaches who then help us very much with the ongoing cognitive side you you said that you you don't focus your work on that aspect of things where do you focus your work very much on the the concept of comprehensive veterinary healthcare. So the idea of the fact that we need to think outside the physical and understand why this is a veterinary subject and behavioural change is a manifestation of compromised health in some way. So, yeah, it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be cognitive, it could be a combination of all three, but that it's health issues that, in the broadest sense, not just physical, that lead to behavioural change. So really that's my focus is getting veterinary practices to consider other dimensions when they're dealing with physical health. We all, thanks to Tony Buffington and gang at Ohio State, we're very aware of feline idiopathic cystitis and people talk about that as, oh, that's the cat stress disease. And, but it's really amazing when I speak to GPs about cases that have been referred to us. 
tank and we're going back to discuss liver function or or could this be a diabetes insipidus case or if all these sorts of things and we're going back or Cushing's or Addison's for example which have quite a major impact on emotional health so if we look and go back to them thinking about that I often get that comment oh I thought it was just cystitis in cats that had something to do with stress so thinking in that broad sense so I think that's where my emphasis has been over recent years is veterinary education trying to establish veterinary behavioural medicine, which is given my fellowship for, but that's what I want to focus on really to make sure it is a discipline in veterinary medicine. Sure. And it's, it's easy, very easy to see how some conditions are, are linked to pain. I'm thinking specifically of pain, often linked to, to aggression in, in dogs and cats. Uh, I guess it's less easy for, uh, for the general public but also for vets to link behaviours such as de- depression, perceived depression, uh, lack of spontaneity, lack of normal display of, of behaviour to be linked to other diseases like Cushing's. You mentioned Cushing's, but we know that people on steroids have behavioural problems. And so it should be, uh, in this world of one health, it should be fairly obvious. No. It's indeed. Yes. Uh, yeah. There you go. There's the message. It should be right. good. But it, sadly, it's not. <laughs> and I really like the fact you just brought up One Health there. I feel really passionately about the One Health approach and the that we are all animals. If you've ever heard me speak, I talk about human animals, non-human animals, not humans and animals, because that divides us and we're not divided. We are just different, but we're not special. I have been challenged. I'm not different. Sorry? I'm not different. You're not different. You're different from a cow and a dog and a horse. No, I'm not different from anything. We have species-specific needs, species-specific differences, things that have to be respected. But humans are not special. And I've been challenged on saying that, but I continue to say it. I don't believe that humans are special. I believe we are just a different form of animal. And we have a slightly differently evolved brain that doesn't necessarily mean it's superior either because if you think about quite a few things that we can't do that other species do very well and so our brain clearly isn't very superior it's just different but it does mean that we have a responsibility because we have put ourselves as a species in this position of control whether we should or shouldn't that's another debate but we have we've made an assumption that we should haven't we? we've made We've been guided in that way by certain courses as well. But anyway, so we've got to this position. I'm going to interrupt you just momentarily. We'll get you back on course in just a sec. But our listeners, the ones who are following this by audio rather than audiovisual, can't see how vigorously Mike has been nodding his head during all this. And I'm agreeing with every word of it as well. So please, back to you, Sarah. I, um, I can't remember where I was up to, but anyway, probably talking about human arrogance because that's what I talk a lot about. Yep. But basically, that I think, yeah, we need to respect other species. If we and we make the decision that they will live in a world that we control, so if we do that, we also have a responsibility to ensure that they are best equipped to do that, and also that we are willing to modify our world where necessary to make it more comfortable for them. And I guess that's where a lot of people struggle because we want these animals to just fit in with us. 
And if you take the other approach, which isn't mine, but the approach that humans are special and that therefore they, these animals were all somehow developed in order to serve our purposes, which is a very bizarre way of looking at life, in my opinion. But if that is your opinion, then it makes more sense that you don't have to consider these things. But yep. unfortunately, yep. there still are people who do believe that. It would seem to be highly unlikely, wouldn't it, given the sphere of probability that the existing in any case, to, to think we've all existed, or we've been brought into existence by a process of evolution, minute binary changes that have somehow all been engineered so that we could rule everything. That's something really controversial out there. I think evolution did make a little bit of a mistake and should have stopped at the gorilla myself, but I think that's where it all went wrong. I think we were wrong to come down to the trees, to be honest. I wrote a letter at the time, but there we go. That's the problem, Julian. Somebody wrote it down. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. That's where it all starts. That's where it all went wrong. If yeah. only we could go back to that. Yeah. yeah. You've started on a controversial course. So I'm going to drive further into that if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, oh, no worries. Love being controversial. <laughs> so you mentioned, you mentioned that Roger Rugford had refused to sign the Dangerous Dogs Act. I said he didn't support it. Nobody he didn't, I'm so it. sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm so nobody sorry. signed it, but he didn't support it quite rightly. Neither do I. But he was, he had a more, he had a public profile, which he used very effectively and all credit to him. He worked really hard to raise awareness that this was a very poor piece of legislation. This is because we're putting or shifting the blame immediately onto the animal rather than the co-responsibility of the owner and the owner's behavior and treatment of that animal, which then triggers the consequence of the behavior of the animal. Is that? It's even broader than the caregiver. It's society, it's humans. And because some of these dangerous dogs, dogs act and prosecutions that I've been involved with as an expert witness over the years, it is, it, it's been a combination of a number of factors that have led to the situation where that was the behavioral response of the animal. And probably the one who is least to blame is the animal, the non-human animal, as in the dog. So, yeah, absolutely. It's not. And also, I think there's a lot of ignorance about the Dangerous Dogs Act. And again, I think Roger Mudford and other people since Kendall Shepherd is another person who's done a lot of work highlighting the bad things about the Dangerous Dogs Act. I'm very privileged to be a member of the Merseyside Dog Safety Partnership, which is another organization that does a lot of really good work on raising awareness as to the complexity of the situation of dog bites. And then, of course, Trevor Cooper from Dog Law, who, if anyone listening to this ever in the UK has a problem with their dog and feels they may be on the wrong side of the Dangerous Dogs Act, the first person you should speak to is Trevor Cooper at Dog Law because they are the only organisation I know of lawyers who are dedicated to dog-related legislation and they wow. are definitely the right people to go to for advice if you ever find yourself in that situation. And the reason I'm saying that is because so many people can find themselves in that situation because it's not, as some people think, just legislation about three or four dog breeds, the Japanese Tozer, the Dogo Argentino, the Filari Brasiliaris and the Pitbull. It's, that's what people think. They go, oh, dangerous dogs out here. Well, that's about those banned breeds, isn't it? This is in section one. But section three is about your dog, my dog, anybody's dog. He was looking funny at me. Don't like that one. Uh, yeah, well, that, well done, Mike. That brings the other point. 
which is that it's about the interpretation of the recipient of the behavior. It actually says caused reasonable apprehension of injury. What is that? Because what (laughs) one man's reasonable is not another man's reasonable, is it? It's completely objective. So So you're talking to two very unreasonable men. So yeah, I think I'd agree with you there. Crazy. And and if you, I was going to say, if you ask most vets what dogs they feared most, people have asked most vets, and the dog that perhaps not isn't necessarily feared most, but certainly bites more often, is something like the Dachshund, isn't it? Yeah, I, I don't think there is a breed that should be labelled in that way. Any breed, but it's not so one thing to call them. Um, lovely, lovely Dachshund. Smaller dogs, I think people possibly underestimate the potential for there to be a problem. And then are taken by surprise if there is one. And the fact is that there are three people sitting here talking to each other. Every single one of us has the same potential to hit somebody else. Whether or not we have will depend on many factors. And those factors will be complex and it will be related to childhood factors, the factors of that particular situation or context you were in when you decided to hit someone or not to. So all of that. It's very individual. And so we've got to remember that other animal types, not non-human animals, also have exactly the same, that it's a behavioral response that is possible, then whether or not you take that route will have many different factors in it. It's yeah. Yeah. not thought of as a simple, that dog did this in this situation, therefore it's bad. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Does that mean we label every human animal who ever hit anyone as a bad person. Well, maybe we need to think about the context, the reasons, blah, blah, blah. Well, absolutely. And it's all too simple to describe them as triggers, isn't it? As a facile eye. have our limits. No, it's much more complex than just having limits. Yeah. In the Heath model, I talk about this sync analogy. And the idea of that is that everyone does have a, a capacity for emotion which is determined by various factors. But whether or not you exceed your capacity is really multifactorial. It's about what's coming in and what's going out. So you've got a sink, whether it spills over the top is not just the size of the sink. It's also how much you put in and how much you've taken out and what's the balance between those two things as to whether you're going to stay inside that capacity or not. But it does mean that if you've got variable sink sizes, you're going to have variable tolerance of emotional and varying needs for emotional output. And also the size of your sink is not, it is the size of the sink, but if your sink's already got water in it, then the functional size of your sink is actually smaller than. So what has already happened, so what had happened just before that dog, did the caregiver take their dog for a massive long walk before they came to the vet practice for the appointment? What happened on that walk? Did they play ball with their companion for 30 minutes because the caregiver thought it'd be a good idea to tire them out before the vet visit, when actually that stimulates engaging emotion, which is filling up the sink. So the dog comes in with a sink three quarters full. You've got more chance that dog's not going to cope, even though what it just done was have a, what the caregiver believed to be a great time running around the park with a ball because they were trying to tire them out. And, and they're the dogs who, if they could talk, would start each sentence with, and another thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can think of a lot of dogs who want to say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So we hear of dangerous dogs. We hear a little bit about dangerous cat breeds. And there are, I think, in contradistinction to dogs, there are some cat breeds that are inherently perhaps a little bit closer to the wild cats. Oh, but but we also hear of, of naughty tortoise, don't we, and, and, and things like that. And there's a lot of myth with the uh, uh, with with the with the nails and the teeth. Do, do you have any thoughts about cat behaviour? What drives good cat behaviour? Is it the same thing as dogs? Yeah, absolutely. It's a mammal. So we go back to the basics of mammalian emotions. They have all of the eight emotional systems that all mammals have. And then the differences are impacted by their species-specific behaviours. So this is a, now we're talking about a dog, an animal, so a cat that is a predator and a prey species. We often forget, we always talk about those predators and often forget they are prey as well. So they have heightened vigilance and they have a pre- predisposition to anxiety, which is absolutely normal because they're a prey species. And then they're also a solitary survival species. So they're not a group living mammal in terms of protection. They are group living as in they do have social groups, but they're not in terms of survival. So that makes them very different. And yes, you're right. We do have some wild type crosses in the population and we have to have a better education about the fact that they are different because they are crossed with high, with wild DNA, therefore not hybrids. So they're not just a domestic shorthair. So yes, there are differences in terms of their emotional tendencies and their predominances. So for example, Bengals are prone to frustration. And if you know that if frustration is something that they're prone to, then you can modify their environment to try and reduce chances of them becoming frustrated but sadly when you have no recognition of that and then do things like keep them indoors 100% of the time because they cost a lot of money you don't want them squashed by a car then you are automatically potentially making them frustrated in in an animal that's already got a tendency for that particular emotion and that emotion is linked to confrontation so it's not surprising that you may then get confrontational behavior but if you knew that it was it had that tendency in terms of emotional predisposition, then you could modify your indoor environment if you still want to save your money and not get squashed on the road. You could think about ways in which you could modify the indoor environment to fulfill the needs that lead to wanting to go outside. But you're not going to do that if you haven't thought about what you're buying in the first place. So a bit of education as to, I'm just going and buying a cat, yes, but are you buying a hybrid or are you buying a domesticated cat? Those are two slightly different things. So yeah, it's not that it's not that any of the acts, the animals are I'm not saying they're not at fault. They make mistakes, but then so do we. We, they don't make mistakes as such. They just find it possible to exert their normal range of behavior. Yeah. In, and in, in a way that we'd like. Sometimes they do make mistakes because they have they do have a choice of behavioural responses to their sure. emotions. But if they're not emotionally intelligent, that's another thing that I've done quite a lot of so education on is this idea of emotional intelligence is now pretty well understood in humans, but or for human animals to think about them needing to be emotionally intelligent, but not about non-human animals. Actually, they also need to learn which responses to emotions are appropriate and which are not, which are 
helpful, which will gain your sensation of safety. So I always give the analogy of having a child who doesn't like someone at school. And it's perfectly okay that you don't like every child in the class. You're not expected to go to school at the age of five and find four or five and find 29 other children all absolutely amazingly wonderful. And I love them all. And that would be odd. So there's probably going to be one, at least one that you don't like. But if that happens and you you don't like Molly, then it's not okay to hit Molly. What you need to do is you need to away from Molly and go somewhere else. And that's exactly the same sort of emotional intelligence that a dog needs to learn. It's not that you have to love every human being you see or that you have to like every context I take you into, but these displays of repelling behavior are not going to reach that point of safety, but this will. So avoidance is the response that will gain safety in the most predictable way and will actually keep you safe. But what happens then is we've got a fluffy puppy that's all cute and goo and, oh, it's so lovely. And so when it goes, it's walking, and I can't do it on here, but when it's walking along beside its owner on the pavement and some total stranger comes over and looms over it and goes, oh, it's my lovely puppy. And the puppy goes like that. What does the caregiver do? They pick it up and go, say hello to the lady. And so what you've just said is a best word. Yes, that's right. The equivalent of picking your five-year-old daughter up, pointing her towards Jack Nicholson. There we go. Yes, he's got it. He's a friendly chap. Go on, say hello. Say hello. It's, it's, the, it's the Auntie Mary scenario, isn't it? It's like, go and go hug Auntie Mary. Yeah. And yeah. Auntie Mary. But because you're being forced into going and giving this purple-haared lady a hug. Um, there was a 50-a-day smoker and has inch-thick lipstick on that hasn't been cheesed. I have bad memories of Auntie Mary. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, everyone's got one. <laughs> I don't know what brandy smelled like at that age, but I'm pretty sure it's on the, on the, uh, the bottle as well. <laughs> Do you work, have active strategies then to help people understand these traits and these behaviours? Yes, what we do on a daily basis. So, yeah, we'll be presented with a caregiver who has a concern over a particular behavioural, so often be has been repelling towards a stranger or to children or maybe is using avoidance in a way that's not helpful. So I can't put the harness on my dog because it runs away. So so be using any of the strategies, um, but not appropriately. So it's teaching people what are the emotions that drive this. So in behavioral medicine, you've got the W questions. So what did it do? When did it do it? Where did it do it? With whom or with what did it do it? And why did it do it? And right. you can't get to why until you've gone through all the other W's. So it's no good. People on the train try it all the time. It, what do you do? I'm vet. You never say that, do you? I'm a hairdresser when I'm on the train. You never want to say that. That's a stupid thing to say. And what you definitely don't say is I'm a behavior. Definitely you don't say that. But if you were to be so stupid, as I obviously have done in the past, and then they go, oh, my dog barks. Why does he do that? I don't know. Yes. I, Presumably I, because he's not a Basenji. Because. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. But I, I have absolutely no idea. I've got 30 plus years experience in this, but I have no idea. Because what do you mean by bar? So what does it do? So I want to know what is the bar? And then where does it do it? 
So when, where is it when it is gone? And then when does it do it? So is it in that location in an evening or in an afternoon? Or is it when there are people there, when there are not people there? So the with whom or the with what? And if I haven't got that information, I'm as clueless as the next man as to why your dog is barking. No clue. Can't help you. Bye. So you need to know more. But people do. They say, oh, my dog bit a child once. Why would he have done that? God. You know what? Was it a bit of a horrible child? I don't know. Because I haven't got enough information there. So I need to learn. And sadly, the Dangerous Dogs Act on not enough information. Yeah. So yeah. just stop it to child, kill it. Whoa. Absolutely. Shall it's we just, a very black and white law, isn't it? Yeah. Shall we just go back and do the W questions and find out something? There was a horrifically tragic case of a child, a very small child. This is a media one, not one I was involved with personally, but, and it was a Rottweiler, of course it was, and it was a small, very small child of a, 18 months or something like that. And anyway, and th- that was the horrific headline that this Rottweiler had killed this child. And then when you actually got to get any information, which most of the time you don't on the news, of course, you never get information. But when you did get the information in this particular case, the responsible adults in the situation were at the pub. The only people in the house at the time were the 18-month-old a six-year-old and I think a seven-year-old, something like that. So three children in the house. The dog was in the yard, was outside in the yard, and they had a stable door on the back door out of the house. And so the six-year-old, the 18-month-old was going, I can't see the dog. And so the seven-year-old or six-year-old picked the child up to dangle it over the top of the stable door to say, dog. So when you start to unpack it, you go, who, who's at fault here? Yeah. It, it's just, Absolutely. But that doesn't make gone? great headlines, does it? Unbelievably no. stupid family gets, gets eaten by a dog. No, that's, that doesn't work well in the mirror. No, it doesn't, sadly. <laughs> it's all about education, isn't it? All of this is about education. It's all about giving, getting information out to people who don't know they need to know it. Yes. yes. If they know I, they need to know it, they come looking for it. Yeah. It's the ones but who getting that information know. out isn't new to vets, is it? No, because what we do, isn't it? Yeah. So but it just maybe it always seems yeah. a shape that we don't do that with behaviour. Enough. Sorry. As Enough. GP vets. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> Talking yeah, of it's, it's getting better, I think. Talking, Talking of We've touched on it once already. Sorry to cut you off there, Sarah, but you've actually alluded to this fact already, that you're familiar with the section of the show called 60 Second CPD. Yes. <laughs> She's saying hesitantly. <laughs> okay, so you up for this? I'll go for it. I'll try. Yeah, all right then. Okay, yeah. so 60 Second CPD with Sarah Heath. What is comprehensive veterinary health care starting now. The training of vets traditionally focuses on the physical health of non-human animals. However, health is more than just physical. And in the field of veterinary behavioural medicine, consideration is also given to the other two components of the health triad, which are namely emotional and cognitive health. 
These three components are inextricably linked to one another and comprehensive healthcare involves considering the impact of them and the interplay between them. In the field of human healthcare, the term biopsychosocial model was first applied by George Engel in 1977 to explain how a person's medical condition is not simply related to biological factors, but also to psychological and social influences. Dr. Daniel Mills wrote about a psychobiological approach to companion animal behavior problems in 2016. And in the Heath model of emotional health, I refer to comprehensive veterinary healthcare, including consideration of emotional and cognitive health in our work as veterinary professionals will enable our enable us to fulfill our professional responsibility to make the health and welfare of animals committed to our care our prime concern. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I, I think you were you know, half a second out because there was a bit of a stutter going on, but that was perfect. As you, and, and incredibly interesting and relevant. So it proves, I think, doesn't it, that laughter is one of the best medicines. Oh, 110%, yes. And so what's the non-human equivalent to laughter, I think is a really good question. Because, again, we tend to think that our non-human companions will show affection in the same way we do and will smile like we do because we want them to do what we do because we're so perfect. But actually, they show affection in very different ways. It's another topic. But they show joy in different ways as well. And and one of the things that non-human animals find particularly pleasurable is to be able to be free and to have freedom of movement, which is something that Sarah Fisher talks about. You see a dog running free in a field and you can see real joy as they are just allowed to be themselves. And cats who are totally in control of what they're doing are enjoying that control and freedom and ability to be themselves. So that's be allowing them the possibility to be themselves, to be the species that they are, to express themselves gives them joy in a way that we get from having a good laugh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. And you say they'd like to be free. You like to, to be able to run and do the things that they should do. You, you like to run as well, though, Sarah, don't you? I like to run. Oh, very good link there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah, I do the race to life. That's what you're alluding to. That was what I was alluding to. Yeah. 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 So I've been doing the race for life ever since I had cancer treatment in 2013, 2014. And so, yeah, we've been doing it as a group of my friends got together. We, I did the first one when I was still on treatment. So it was very much a walk and it has really stayed a walk because we take young children with us as well. And so we've bit some of my friends who are clearly younger than me have got young children. And so they come along on the walk as well. It's become a tradition every year. And the next one is in June, Tatton Park this year. So yeah, the gang will be getting back together, putting on our pink stuff. We've all got t-shirts, pink t-shirts that were made for that one in 2014 that mine is signed by all my friends who are with me at that walk. So I wear that every year to do walk. And uh, yeah, it's a good event. How far is it? Well, we did the 5K last year. We actually did the 3K because we had my, I had my four month old flap coat with me as well. Not last year, the year before. And so we did a shorter one, but then we're back at the 5K. And then my friend Jane, who's a school friend and who comes on it, she does the 10K because she's better than the rest of us. And she's it's different. People can either come along and join, can't they? Or they can actually do the simple thing of getting money. That would be very welcome. Yes. Fantastic. And uh, I'm sorry to hear of your struggle. I'm so pleased that you're alive. 
through it on the other side. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Yeah. And th- thank you for carrying on doing the race for life to, to help others. Yeah, no, we're very grateful. Love the NHS. They are an amazing organisation. Despite they're, they're not for, they're for a bit of stick at the moment, aren't they? They are. And they are, and they're not without their struggles. I'm not saying that, but they are amazing. You need them. They're incredible. Yeah. I think we've on that. Even though we can't get to see a GP, we've all found it. In other ways, they're good. Sarah, I have a, a CPD certificate. I was going to ask I, you. I think you've definitely earned. Here we go. So, a certificate of being on your best behavior. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I pre- oh, I love the, oh, there's cows. There's a cow. I, I love the dairy, Africa. That's the my dairy cow there. there. About that. Did you, know about, did you know about my love of Africa? Is that why you put that on? I tell us more. Didn't oh, no, I, tell I, us, tell I, us. I put it on just because I, I was mentioning the savannah cats and I was thinking uh, what a good job it was and we didn't have any any half African hunting dog. Ah. Uh, well, but uh, tell us about your love of Africa. Africa's very close to my heart. I have very good friends, Botswana and friends in Botswana who run a mobile safari company. And so I've been out with some many times and done lots of very exciting yeah. safaris and particularly bird watching with some. And then also Peter Brothers, I don't know Peter Brother, he runs a organisation called Vet Safaris. And you can go out with Peter and do vet work with him. So I've been out with him a couple of times. We've done stuff with leopards, cheetahs, rhinos, elephants, buffalo. Brucellosis testing in Buffalo and yeah, knocking down elef- out elephants for health checks. and Wow. Yeah, wow. It's brilliant work. And yeah, anyone who gets a chance to go with Peter and his crew, he does a range of different veterinary safaris for vets to go. He's a wildlife vet himself and he runs these safaris that raise They raise money as he does them for some wildlife conservation work. So, how can our listeners get onto that? A Peter Brothers veterinary safaris. I can send, if you're going to put links on, I can send you links to Peter yeah, that'd be great. Sam as well. Early Kingfisher safaris is Sam's business in Botswana. Wonderful. I only know of Botswana through the Mildred Motsway books. It is a, the most, I love Botswana. It is just an amazing country. And the Okavanga Delta is like nowhere on earth. It's absolutely amazing. If you haven't been, you need to oh, well. Definitely goes. That's such a lovely name as well. He's funny names. Here we go. Gotta go, Julian. Back onto I the must, you you Back onto the CBD. Now there's my chat. Oh, playing uh, snakes and ladders. Yeah, she enjoys a nice game of that. She cheats terribly though. Uh, hunting dogs, as I said, probably a good job. You haven't got those too much in practice, although they're beautiful. And now there's a cheater wearing a harness, and this was. One of the most disturbing things I've seen, I think, in this country. This, oh, that's from this country. That's from this country. This cheetah is trained to run up and down on its, in its harness on a wire to, to show eager viewers how fast it can go. And I, I can't believe it's truly enjoying it. There we go. Maybe it is. Oh, dear. That's, the yeah. other, that's my favorite species, cheetah. Is it? One of mine. One of my second, second only to snow leopards. In terms of my my finidine favourites, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike, of course, knows my favourite odd toed ungulus is <laughs> well, it's, it's the rotapia, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And now, in the realms of not being able to exhibit normal behaviour, here we have what I can only yeah. describe as a monstrosity. This poor little 
brachycephalic dog. Amazing enough, the tongue is quite pink. You can see it hanging out about a foot from his mouth. But Mitronaries, the facial folds are so far over its face that it can't see anything. And you can hear it coming from down the road. And we talk about behavior. We've spoken about bad behavior. We've spoken about good behavior. We spoke a little bit about rewarding good behaviors. What do you do when you see a dog that, that can't perform any behavior because it's hypoxic all the time? And, and that's something that, that, that I know is close to your heart as well, Sarah. You've you spoken to me about that sort of thing. Where we've met yeah. other and things. Yeah, I think, yes, again, we come back to the behavior of human animals, don't we? And we, it doesn't matter what we do to get what we want. So, yes, it's very sad. And I think we need to, again, as a profession, we do need to be vocal about the fact that this is not okay and these animals cannot function normally and that's not okay. And we do see the behavioural consequences of that. Definitely, we see animals who have issues, particularly in relation to chronic pain, because chronic pain is so closely linked to behavioural change. So I think, yeah, we do see these animals on a regular basis. And I think one of the sad things is that the people we are talking to, and I think this is often the case in many realms of life, are not the people we need to be talking to. Because the person who's in front of the caregiver who has taken on a pet with the best of intentions and with a lack of education and who loves animals and really does care for it, otherwise it wouldn't be in the veterinary practice having Boas surgery. Absolutely. It is, we're not talking to the right people that... We need to be talking to the people who made the decision that this would be a good money spinner. And that's not the caregiver who's in front of us. So this is a job for our organizations, our lobbyists, our people who can talk to the people that matter in terms of legislation. It's not the GP talking to the caregiver in the consult room. That's not where that conversation needs to take place, I don't feel. No, I think all we can do is all we can do is alienate. Yes, and it's not fair because the person in front of you, I know they purchased that individual and therefore, yes, they have contributed to the fact it happens, but I don't believe that they are the people who are really responsible for this problem. So we need to be talking to our people in the Kennel Club, people in higher positions of authority and politicians, all those sorts of people who actually have some clout to make real changes, not to individual caregivers. I think you're absolutely right. It's an unpleasant conversation for the client coming to the realization that they may have made a mistake in their choice of a pet, but we certainly shouldn't berate them for it. And they, they love were, that individual. Yeah. And it's yeah, not that individual's good. fault either. That like individual it's, it's not like that. It's not. So, as, as vets, we're used to, to giving bad news, we're used to asking difficult questions. Actually, on, on that subject, I know that. I hope I'm not getting the timing wrong, Mike, but I think you have a difficult question to ask Sarah, don't you? Oh, you never ask this question. I always, I, I can't. I, you always I, defer I, it to me. Sorry, I always like, do. You ask it so, Mike. Okay, I'll ask the question, but I felt we've been getting on so well with Sarah and she's given us such a, an insight into her life, all of the we, good things that we can do. We decided months ago it's important to ask this sort of question. Okay. away from it. All right. Okay. I, I will ask it then. If you're going to make me ask the question, I'll ask the question. I think it would help. Okay. Sarah, a lot of our listeners are very keen to, to know 
the answer to this question. And it's not an easy question to ask, although I feel I know you so much better now and enjoyed your company over the last hour. Sarah, what's your favourite bread? My favourite bread? Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question because I have a wheat intolerance. <laughs> it would be gluten-free bread. Excellent. Now, it's very excellent because my sister-in-law is gluten-free. I, I make two or three loaves of bread a week. But when she comes, I panic, thinking I've got to get a recipe for bread that actually looks and tastes unlike a house brick. Do you have any good? It doesn't fall apart balls. when you touch it. That's Absolutely. Gluten the- <laughs> balls. <laughs> I sometimes add gluten to the mix, but apparently that's not the thing to do. No, no. I counterproductive, but yeah. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant stuff. We've asked you a lot of questions, and, and I'd like to ask you one more question, Sarah. And that is, do you have a reflection question that will that you could ask us and ask our listeners? Yeah, I did think about this when I was thinking about the topic. Mm. So the topic of the almost sixty-second CPD, which which is. How do people feel that a better understanding of comprehensive veterinary healthcare for non-human animals might improve the service that they give as vet professionals to both their patients and their clients? Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's your reflection for your one CPD app. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. (laughs) That's amazing. That's lovely. I have just seen the time, I'm afraid. So, is there anything that you feel that we've missed out that you'd like us to mention at this point? You don't think so? Apart from that, Liverpool Football Club's the best football club in the world. You didn't ask me about that. Yeah, apart from that. I think think the glitch, I think the internet glitched there for a moment. There was a sign. On that note, perhaps what we'd better do. On that bombshell. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed for enlightening us. And I have to say, as Julian mentioned there, I think I think we've got a, a real meeting of minds there with some of the stuff you were talking there about One Health and the special human animal and things like that. I think it's been absolutely amazing. It's been I've learned a lot this evening. And oh, very me too. Huge amount. Uh, it's been fun. Yeah, and don't forget if you like what you've heard and or seen. Don't forget, if you really want to help us, get in touch. But don't forget, tick that subscribe button. Like us, share us, subscribe. It really does make a difference. And everybody at Veterinary Ramblings would be very grateful for that. Sarah Heath, thank you very much indeed. May your dog go with you. (laughs) May your dog go with you. Cheers. Bye.